0: Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? This is a very common question, especially for those who are wrestling with the point and the place of Christianity. It's a very common question even for those who are opposed and seeking to undo what we believe the Bible teaches. Why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe some of you have wrestled with this question in your own lives through the death of a loved one or facing some kind of trauma or abuse or even looking at the global crises that we see around us. Why do bad things happen to good people, to innocent people? And in light of the question like this, is there actual hope and rest in God In the face of all this sorrow and ruin. Or to say that another way, does God even care when things fall apart in our lives or in the world around us? When His name is hated and His people are persecuted. This morning we began the second half of our journey through the Minor Prophets. We have made our way through half of them now, and it has been a joy for me to preach. I hope it's been a joy for you to absorb what is held out in God's Word. But as we come now to the second half, we come to this question. As we come to the prophet by the name of Nahum, we find an answer in God's Word of some sorts to this kind of question. But as we go on here from now, Nahum included and the prophets who are left, we're going to enter into uh, some of the shorter prophecies, the smaller of the minor prophets, with the exception of Zechariah. And we'll do that prophet, the prophet Zechariah, into two sermons because he's a bit longer. But the rest of these, is gonna, they're going to go fast. And I'm excited to get through them. But we're still coming at this question. And the, and the question I just asked is a part of that question is, is how God works among his people to draw them back to himself. You remember, this is the point of the minor prophets. This is why God gave them a word to deliver to His people so that He could call them back, so that He could bring renewal to them and reformation to who they were supposed to be to reform them into who they were. And so you may be wondering, how does the question of God's place in evil in the world and God's people needing renewal actually go together? This is what Nahum answers for us. If you turn there in your Bible, you'll see that we get very little information about Nahum. You can begin to go ahead and try to find the book if you want. We find out very little information about who Nahum is, what he is, or where he is from, or when he spoke. But in many ways, as we're going to come to see, the book of Nahum is an answer or is the sequel to Jonah. A dramatic sequel, a dramatic contrast to the prophecy of Jonah. You remember a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, we were in Jonah before we were in Micah. And Jonah was what? He he was the prophet that preached repentance or called for repentance to this city specifically. And God got him there in his sovereign work to this city of Nineveh. But now we find that God's judgment is going to come upon this city of Nineveh. While Jonah was called to go to the city and cry out for their repentance, Nahum is to now speak of their judgment, of God's wrath being poured out upon them. Now if we're kind of timing this, when does this prophecy of Nahum take place? Well, Well, Jonah's mission to Nineveh was probably sometime in the first half of the 700s B.C., we saw in the, in the prophecy of Jonah, or in the book of Jonah, that the Ninevites responded at that time. They repented to, to, in response to Jonah's message, and God spared them from judgment. But as we come to Nahum, we realize that that repentance did not last. It did not last beyond at least 745 B.C., when Nineveh became the leading military power in the Near East as the capital city of Assyria this nation that was constantly coming up against God's people. Then in 722, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So we are left with this question. It's a question perhaps Jonah even had himself. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow this seemingly repentant Nineveh, to rise to military power, to rise to this place where they could come in and they could overthrow Israel and harm God's people and put them under persecution and ultimately crush the chosen. And we meet this question with our own, don't we? It's the same one I ask in the beginning. Why does God still allow such things to happen specifically to His chosen people? Well, Nahum is the answer. Nahum is from this unknown city of Elkosh, and he prophesied sometime after 660 B.C., but before 630 B.C., because at 630 B.C. is the actual fall of Assyria. And Nahum's message is about that fall. It centers all around this. The word of the Lord to Nahum is to know God will not let His people be crushed forever. What I want us to see today is to see that in three parts. And so if you want to write these down, these will be my three points as we kind of work through the entire prophecy. Number one, we're going to see God's global judgment. We're going to see God's global judgment wrapped up there in chapter one of Nahum. Then second, we're going to see God's local judgment. This is wrapped up in chapters two and three of Nahum. So God's global judgment, then God's local judgment. And finally, we're going to see Nahum answer a question. Is there any hope here? Now I've heard it said that Nahum equals doom. And it's going to feel like that for the first two points. But we're going to end with this question. In the book of Nahum, is there any hope specifically for us today? And so as we jump into it, let me begin by reading for us chapter one of Nahum. Chapter one of Nahum. Hopefully you've gotten there by now. So let me invite you to stand once more for the reading of God's Word. And as I read, my prayer for us is that God would make known to us both His power and His goodness. And that in that we would take refuge in Him and Him alone. Hear now the word of the Lord from Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news. publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, I wanted to begin by reading that first chapter so you could get a taste of what's held out here in Nahum. Exactly kind of the flavor of this prophecy perhaps more than, than, than any other passage, at least in the Old Testament, we see the quaking wrath of God. We see the vengeance and the anger of God put on full display, put on full force. We see it there in the very beginning. After learning all we know about Nahum, we are thrown headlong into an opening hymn, a hymn that sounds very different than many of the hymns that we find ourselves singing. We see it there, at least in the first verse, or the first half uh, the first, I'm sorry, cha- verse 2 and the first half of verse 3. We see God's covenant name mentioned there in a verse and a half at least five times. Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. And what did we learn about who God is? How is God portrayed this co- covenant making and, and covenant keeping God of Israel? How is he portrayed here? Jealous and vengeful. Now, well, these are words that we don't often use to talk about our God, do we? That, that, that Yahweh, the one who makes covenant with us, it's, it's rarely that, that we ever hear or read or sing about God being a jealous God. And what does this mean? What does it mean that God is a jealous God or a, a vengeful God? Well, this word jealousy here does not mean that he's some, some, some pitiful man in the sky who, who's just wringing his hands because he's, he's not loved and he, he needs love and, and if we don't show him love then he, he's going to just fall apart and, and melt into a puddle. That's not what this word jealousy here means. No, this word jealousy here represents God's commitment to proper submission to him. Let me say that again. This, this word of jealousy means that God has a burning desire for a proper response to who He is. It's what the Proverbs call the fear of the Lord. That God desires it, that it burns within Him, that all would submit to Him because He is who He is. And so, to not respond to God rightly brings out His jealousy, His vengeance, His wrath. This makes sense. Fathers, we know this. We we get an inkling of this. Though we are finite and it is imperfect, we get an inkling of this when our children disrespect us and try to usurp our authority. We feel that in our hearts. But magnify that a million-fold and purify it a million-fold. And that's what we find in God here. And yet, as we continue reading, Of this Yahweh we find there at the beginning of verse 3 that He is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now if you've been good Bible readers, this should cause your ears to perk up because it's an allusion here to to God's name and to God's character as it's laid out to Moses specifically there in Exodus 34. That God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love but by no means clearing the guilty. Now some of that is taken out, isn't it? The whole entire covenant character of God is is not given here. What is emphasized? Yes, He is slow to anger. But the emphasis here is on His power and how He will not clear the guilty because that is the main message of Nahum, of how God will deal with those who are guilty. Friends, do you see that this is a God that is justly bringing execution for warranted reasons. So what are His ways and means of displaying this? Well, we find it wrapped up here in this beautiful metaphor, this beautiful imagery of nature itself. Look there in verses the second half of verse 3 all the way down through verse 5. Look at the things that are mentioned, that that God comes and He comes on a whirlwind. There's a storms mentioned, clouds, the sea and the rivers, the beautiful terrain, the mountains, and all the earth. And not just all the earth, but all who dwell in the earth. All of the created order is listed here as God approaches and condescends into it. What truth is held out here in this image of God? We don't just know God's character here in these first few verses, but we see Him moving and acting. Acting as what? As this all-powerful warrior that literally has creation at His command. He comes down. And as He comes down, He's on the move, which rolls right into the next section there in 6 through 11. One thing to note here in chapter 1 is that there's no mention of Nineveh. There's no mention of Assyria, the nation which Nineveh was inside of. No, there's something bigger being talked about here. And we see this specifically in these questions. These questions that are asked there in in verse 6 and then again in verse 9. Look at those questions. There's three of them. Beginning in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? The second one, who can endure the heat of his anger? Then jump down to verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? These are seemingly taunting questions that he's laying out before the nations. The prophecy of Nahum is one of questioning what they are about it and what exactly are you trying to do? This has a very Tower of Babel feel to it. What are you trying to do? How are you trying to come up against the Lord? How are you trying to plot against Him? How are you trying to deceive Him and manipulate and maneuver God for your own pleasure and your own gain? What, O nations, do you have that can come up against this powerful God that can withstand His burning anger? And we see the answer to these questions then in the second half of verse 6. His wrath is poured out like fire. So much so that the rocks are broken into pieces. And then again in verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies to darkness. Then the second half of verse 9 all the way through 11, see how He answers this question about those who plot against Him. He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. For they are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. What do we see here, friends? We see this image of God that, again, I say is unpopular in our day. That there is coming a day when God will crush His adversaries finally and fully that He will thwart their plans and the works of those who plot against Him. This has a very Psalm 2 ring to it as well. Why do the nations plot in vain? Do you see and hear the vanity of being an adversary of the Lord, of being His enemy? It is worth nothing. You will be brought to a complete end if you stand against Yahweh. We see this in this great collision there in 12 through 15 of chapter 1. God speaks. And friends, when God speaks, it will surely come to pass. His word will not return void. And so Nahum no longer prophesies by, for God, but gives us the direct speech of God Himself here. Thus says the Lord. In the first part there in verses 12 through 13, it seems to be a covenant conversation of sorts. He seems to be speaking to His people of sorts. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break His yoke off you and will burst your bonds apart. Well, God is making a promise here to His covenant people that those who have opposed them, those who are their adversaries, He will free. He will bring them to nothing, and He will redeem His people. But He's not just speaking to His covenant people. No, there in verse 14 and on into 15, we find His condemning conversation, do we not? No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off. The carved image and the metal image I will make your grave, for you are vile. Friends, what do we make of such jealousy? What do we make of this God that is laid out here? If you came to church this morning to get an uplifting message, is there any held out here in chapter one of Nahu? Well, the rest of the book, as we're going to come to see, refers to a specific event that happened long ago. But here in chapter one, we are told of an event that is yet to have come. We are told of something else. What we're going to hear about Nineveh and Assyria is is just a little picture of this big global work of God held out here in chapter 1. We see God's wrath hits us with its full force. Even we, as all of us at some point, at some time or another, in the depths of our hearts have denied or ignored Him in our own glory pursuits. We are... Brought face to face with the magnitude of God. With the power of God. And we're going to think about this more tonight as we continue our attributes on God. We're going to look at God's omnipotence, His omnipotence, His all power. But here we see it dolled out in a specific way. In His wrath. And so friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of God, If you are not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, I plead with you to open your eyes and to see this God. Have you been confronted with this God? It is not a different God. The Old Testament God and the New Testament God are two. They are one and the same. And so you must come face to face with this God, either now or on the day of judgment. So see Him for who He truly is this morning. That He is a God who is jealous for His own glory because He is worthy of it all. is jealous of His own praise and exaltation because He is who He says He is. And He will not give His glory to another. And friends, there is coming a day when this little metaphor we see here of God descending on the whirlwind and upon the storm, oh, it will come to fruition. It will be literal in the return of Jesus Christ. And when He returns, He will come. Revelation tells us that a sword will proceed from His mouth and that He will rule with a rod of iron and the nations will become His footstool. And so friends, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, please know that that is your fate unless you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, submitting your life to Him. But Christian, for you, are you ignorant of this God as well? How might seeing this God, this God that is held out for us in Nahum, affect our worship of Him? Affect our prayer life? Affect our Bible reading? Affect our parenting or our friendships? How might it affect how we evangelize, how we have a zeal for missions and for the nations? Knowing that this God is coming And He will wipe out all of His enemies. How does it give us a heart to see His enemies repent and become His friends? What a chapter to meditate on this week. But this future day of judgment lays the groundwork for Nahum's prophecy about local judgment. So let's turn there as we think about chapter 2 and chapter 3. God's local judgment. See, Jonah had called Nineveh to repentance but this repentance did not continue to the next generation. We saw the king of Nineveh at that time repent, but it seems now as we enter into this local time of judgment that there has become a new king who has risen up and he has not repented of his sins and he is not a follower of God and he has not put on sackcloth and ashes and cried out to the Lord. No, we find something has happened here. As power and military expansion and wealth and greed have infiltrated the hearts of the people of this city, they have shown themselves outside of God's covenant. We see as those things rose among Nineveh and among Syria, as Assyria rose up into power, that God did not forget about them. And why does He not forget about them? Because He has not forgotten about His covenant people. It's the same thing true for us. Why will God's enemies not go unpunished? Why will God not leave all the injustice and all the sorrow to rule and reign in your own life? Because He will not forget about you. Therefore He cannot forget about that which is done to you and that which is done to Him. While chapter 1 gives us a big picture of the final day of the Lord, chapters 2 and 3, we see how God now gets involved in local time and space. Do you see that? God is outside of time and space and so he's able through Nahum to tell us of a future day that is coming on that last day, the judgment day. But God is not just outside of time and space but is actually local and gets inside of time and space and we see that here now. Let me read for us verses 1-12 through of chapter 2 then. It says there the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts Watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to Nineveh, okay? So, so just keep that in mind. That's who's being talked to here. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Here he comes. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breast. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin, Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion torn enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. There's a lot happening here. in These first 12 verses of chapter 2 first thing to take note of as we move into it is this mention of a scatterer. You see that there in verse 1 of chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against them. This is is a noun speaking of a a person here. The scatterer. This, This word scatterer could also be translated the disperser or the destroyer. Now we aren't told specifically who this is in particular, but the emphasis here instead is on their work and who is it truly at work through them. See, we're being told of here about the fall of Assyria that is yet to come. Nahum is prophesying of a future day in the future for Nineveh and for Assyria where another nation and another king will come up against them and will destroy them and bring them utterly to nothing. We're given a picture here of the final day of Nineveh. God has used the Assyrians... Previously, as his disciplinary rod on unfaithful Judah. But this work would no longer be needed because the Lord is restoring, it says there, the majesty of Jacob. And so we see the battle begin to unfold. There in verses three and four, the chariots come forth. Then we move forward, the chariots come to the wall in verses five and six, and they breach it. This causes a great scattering because this is what scatterers do they scatter. In verses 7 and 8, they run and they cry out, halt, halt. And then we see plundering upon plundering of all that Nineveh had. All the wealth that their greed had accumulated is taken from them in the end. This is a very real battle, friends, that is described before it ever takes place. But history tells us that it came to pass. That the city is left in utter ruin, leaving Nahum to give words to Nineveh there. In verses 10 through 12. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. The Assyrian king shows violence in their attacking and devouring other lands like lions. But now those lions are brought to nothing. In contrast now to the Assyrian empire's descriptions of its military victory, Nahum's description of Nineveh's fall is almost entirely without explicit violence. Did you notice that? that as the city is laid waste, we don't necessarily read about blood and gore. There's not a huge amount of violence that's talked about here. But by presenting the punishment of Assyria in this way, Nahum is able to help keep God's people from a vindictive hate of of their hearers. Because God's people are not commanded here to bring this about themselves, are they? God does not say, okay, my chosen people, now you're going to be the ones who go and take out Nineveh yourselves. And so God describes this great ruin that comes upon Nineveh in a way that protects their hearts but also gives them the hope. The hope that what? That God Himself will execute the judgment. That vengeance belongs to the Lord. Friends, I bring this out because the arrival of the Kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in Christ's earthly minister is similar in this way. That it is without violence. Growth in the kingdom instead comes not through slaying with the sword that stands in the sheath. But it comes through slaying with the sword of God's word. Growth in God's kingdom comes through spirit-empowered witnesses to Christ in all the world, as Acts 1 tells us. What's more, as we think about the ruin brought upon Nineveh. And we think about wars and battles that rage in our own day. We must be reminded as God's people today that this delay that we are living in between Christ's first coming and His second coming means that only upon His return will wrath against His enemies be fully revealed, as 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us. What does this mean for us? That prior to the end of this age, when Christ returns, That we, as God's people, that that even our church here, as Pastor Sean just did, is to pray for those who are opposed to God. And not just pray for them, but to plead with them that they might, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, be reconciled to God. This is the battle that we fight. Yes, friends... The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. But for us, the violence that we are to take up is a holy violence of prayer and evangelism. In doing so, we as a church participate in a mission that is in its deepest sense Christ's own mission. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This rolls right into the next section where we see who it is who will actually vindicate his name. It's not God's people who are to execute vengeance, but God himself. Look there in verse 13 of chapter 2. Behold, I am against you, not Israel, not Judah. Not the kings of Israel, not God's faithful remnant, not even the New Testament church. Who is it? Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of courses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charm, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms." where there was no explicit mention of violence there in chapter 2. As we enter into chapter 3, we see as it is God who lights upon His vengeance and begins to exercise His judgment that yes, violence and ruin will come. We find that there are these two statements, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. We find the first one here in 2.13. We're going to find the second there in 3.5 in just a moment. Chapter 2 ends in this way. We find that that God is the one against them because only He fully knows their transgressions. We see this. And we must remember this. This 1 through 4 of chapter 3 lays out these sins. They're summarized in the charges that Nineveh is a bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, and that its prey is endless. We see here that God doesn't just judge them because of how they have treated His people. His people knew full well how they had been treated by Nineveh and by Assyria. They could have exercised judgment if it were just about them. But God knows that this city is not just a bloody city because of what they have done to His chosen people, but because of what they've done to others among, out and among them. Friends, this is the great realization as we come up against those who may even be persecutors of us. That we do not fully know or understand their hearts and understand the full depth of their sin, but there is One who does, who can execute judgment perfectly and purely and justly because He knows fully. And so this should be a great comfort to us. A great comfort to us who have faced persecution, but yet sit in the dark When it comes to understanding and right judgment, how many of us have faced persecution, have faced slander, have faced hatred for following Jesus, and we don't know. We don't know all that is said. We don't know all that is done. We sit in the dark in our own understanding, and yet there's one who knows it all. And this is him who says for a second time, behold, there in verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse three, chapter 3, verse 5 gives us the second look here. And this section begins with this vivid picture that is meant to shame and bring down the pride of the city. Now I want you to understand what God is doing here because it is meant for their shame. As we enter into this final section, the aim here is not so much destruction as it is removing their influence and their sway over other nations. God intends very really to embarrass them In their pride. He intends very truly to humble them in their arrogance. And so, look at the second half of verse 5. And I, the one God who is against them, will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Friends, it is not wrong to hear those verses read and to think in your heart, praise be to God. So often we live in this culture of nice that it is hard for us to swallow that God would ever do such a thing. But friends, we must be reminded of who these people are, that they are haters of God, that they have rebelled against Him and not just persecuted His people, but crushed image-bearer after image-bearer from among the nations. And now God says enough is enough. I will undo everything that you thought that you were. I will make low every pride and arrogance that had swelled up in your heart. And I will make you ashamed so that all the nations look at you and say, What is up with that? So we see there in those final three sections, three pictures, three taunts, if you will, in 8 through 11, 12 through 15, and then the second half of 15 through 17. There are these taunts that bring shame on Assyria. These three taunts with each one showing that the empire is inferior. That that Assyria had thought they were so great. In first there, in in 8 through 11, God compares them to Thebes, which was an ancient civilization that had, had great power, but were brought down to nothing. And He says, are you better than Thebes? That's set by the Nile there in Egypt. Are you better than them? Are you somehow going to last longer than they have? By no means. I won't let it happen. And then, in those final two taunts, taunts there through the end, he undoes their own military invincibility. He says, You think that you're invincible. You think that there's nothing that can come up against you. You think that you are going to last forever, that you are the sovereign rulers of the nations. That your empire will last. What do you think I'm going to do to you? I am going to bring you down to nothing. And this ends the biblical history, at least, of the Assyrian empire. This is it. This is the end. The book's closing lines connect the fall of Assyria back to this opening hymn's focus on God's commitment to destroy all evil. See, this term evil that's mentioned here appears only one other time in the book of Nahum. And it's back there in chapter 1 verse 11 where it describes the nation's plots against the Lord. And so we see that this is all one big bow that is wrapped up and, and, and tied off very nicely for us that God is going to bring justice where it is local or global. And so the certainty of the fall of Assyrian Syrian king and his empire there and 18 through 19 is ultimately due not to his lack of wisdom or the lack of military force or the lack of finances or the lack of land or lack of horses or chariots. It is ultimately due to God that he is the one who will bring them to nothing. Why? Because of his unshakable commitment to overcome and destroy evil as he saves and protects his people. Friends, we must remember then that Nineveh fell because it was godless and an idolatrous city, a city of violence and just. I'm sorry, and lust and greed. To so what emerges from all of this? What's held out for us in all of this? What do we see here in, as God steps into time and space with his judgment? That Yahweh is just not just any other God among the gods of the nations but that He rules over the nations and uses them as He chooses to accomplish His purposes. And friends, as far as that goes, it has not changed today. What's held out in the future for our own nation or for the nations of the world, we do not know. We do not know what will happen next year or the year after, but God does. And the good news for us, especially those of us who who tend to fret over political and social and cultural matters and we get worked up and nervous and fearful and prepare for the end, the good news here is that God will always use the nations for His glory. In time, Syria would come to know this full well. Nahum's prophecy would come to full fulfillment. At the same time, the Babylonians and their king, Nebuchadnezzar, would learn this hard lesson as well. But what does this mean for all of us thousands and thousands of years later? Or to ask it this way, what does a God so close do for us? The fact that Nahum delivered his oracles prior to the fall of Nineveh holds the key. I mean, don't miss this. As you you stand and look back on this in history, you you can glaze over this, and I don't want you to, that Nahum gives this prophecy before it happens. And therein holds the key, the hope for us. This is a powerful reminder to us that in due time, God will deal with evil in general. That He will deal with their persecutors in particular. And indeed, He will deal with the devil and death itself. This section also gives us, as God's people, added grounds for confidence. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in the nations, but confidence in Jesus Christ. Because it is Jesus who tells us in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's what we get a picture of here. Because of that, it's possible for us to storm the gates of hell because they shall not prevail over Christ building His kingdom through His church. But beyond this, we know that our individual trials are also not lost on God. Yes, this deals with cities and nations. But for God's people during this time, this was a very real and present trial. This was a very real and present tribulation. If you had dropped in among God's people during this time period and ask them, what is the great burden of your heart? No doubt this would have been one of them. That they were facing such hardship, such tribulation, such horror as another nation vanquishing them and crushing them. And so the great hope for us held out in Nahum is that God is not absent-minded about our trials. He is not absent minded about our tribulation. His eye does not suddenly miss us, but everything is passing through his hand. As Pastor David reminded us last week from Romans 11, God will never misuse or mishandle our lives, but will sustain us and keep us even in the darkest night of our souls. This is the good news of a sovereign and powerful God that He uses the darkest of times for our good and for His glory. This weekend our family watched Fellowship of the Ring and I was reminded of this scene. It's in the novel as well where they run into the cave, into the mines, of the dwarves. The orcs are pressing in. Balrog is about to come take Gandalf off somewhere into the deep. And as they're sitting and waiting in the darkness, fearful, Frodo, who's been entrusted to carry the great burden of taking this ring to Mordor, turns to Gandalf and says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. And friends, when we were watching the movie, I'm like, there's so many situations in my life. That's that's the same thing I say. I wish this burden were not here, and I wish that this would have never happened. But Gandalf turns to Frodo, and this is what he says. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Friends, many of us carry burdens in our lives. And we step back and we think, God, why is this happening? Why am I here? Why am I tasked to carry this? Why are these burdens upon me? Why has this been allowed to take place in my life, in the life of my loved ones? And here in Nahum we are reminded of this truth. It's the truth that Gandalf held out, though not as explicitly as Nahum. That there are other other forces at work and it is the force of God Himself. It is the work of God Himself that God is not absent-minded to the wreckage of our lives. But He knows the details in and out and is working in them in ways that are above our understanding, that are outside of our power. Which brings us to the final lingering question, is there any hope for us? Is Nahum all about doom? Is there anything to be held out for us? All this talk What's to come for those who stand opposed to God? This is bad news for those who stand against God. Maybe even for some of you today. But what for God's redeemed people? What does Nahum desire to reveal to them? I I don't know if you picked up on this, but flip back over to the very beginning of the book. Verse 1, third word in. An oracle concerning Nineveh. Friends, I believe that that word is not there concerning on accident. I believe that if this were a prophecy for Nineveh, it would say a word, an oracle for Nineveh. But the word for is not there. No, in the Hebrew, the word there is the word we we translate concerning, about. So who is this message for then? Friends, Nahum is doing what all of the prophets here are doing. They are delivering God's word to God's people. Yes, this is a message about another nation, a nation who had crushed underfoot God's people. And so God is now giving them a message that He has not forgotten them. What does Nahum reveal to them? Well, we've seen this throughout the prophets. Hosea answered the question, what is God's love? Joel answered, who will God save? Amos, does God actually care? Obadiah, Does God have enemies? Jonah, how deep is God's mercy? Micah, what does God want? What does Nahum say? Each of these prophets' aim was what exactly? Remember, the aim of the prophets is to bring reformation to God's people, to put them back in mind, I'm sorry, in line with God's heart and mind, to make them reflect once more the glory of Yahweh to the nations. So what of Nahum? What's his message to God's people? What reforming work is he doing here? Well, he desires to help them see the power and the protection of God. I didn't have to work hard on that alliteration, so you should be able to remember it. The power and protection. This is what Nahum is about. God's power, as we've seen, but also his protection. In a word, his refuge. This is the life thread that is woven throughout Nahum's word, refuge. Refuge is a popular word in our day. It's a word that we see thrown around all the time in media and politics, that we want to be a refuge. We want to be a refuge for this people or that people. We want to be a refuge any way that we can. What does it mean? Refuge means to be a place of safety, a place of care. This is why when we talk about refugees, we're talking about those who are seeking safety, who are seeking protection, who are seeking care. But what does Nahum say about this? Look back at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Friends, that whole beginning of chapter 1 is all about the character of God. So, what do we learn here? That the Lord is good. This is your daily Hebrew lesson. It is the word Tov. It's an easy one to remember. T O V, Tov, good. It means that He is pleasant, that He is favorable, literally, that He is happy and right. In some ways, it is the very opposite of vengeful. And so, what is it doing here? We've just heard that God is vengeful, that He is jealous, that He is wrathful, that He is angry. But He is good, He is pleasant, He is happy, He is right. Why? Who? How does that work? He is good to those who take refuge in Him. He is a stronghold. Not only good, but powerful. He is a stronghold. This is the answer to all of our troubles. How can He be these things? Because He, look there at the end of verse 7, He knows. This is such a powerful word in the Old Testament. It means to, to know intimately, to know deeply, to know fully. Not just knows like, hey, I heard about that person, but to know like this is my best friend. He knows. And because He knows, like a good doctor, He always applies the right we see this work continue go to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1 the Lord says though they are at full strength and many they will be cut down and pass away though I have afflicted you see God had disciplined his people with the rod of affliction through Assyria I will afflict you no more what is the work of God that he had brought the discipline and he now promised to remove it Friends, what good news for us as we read passages like Hebrews 12, 3-11, that His a bitter allowance in our life is meant to produce a sweet aroma of glory in the next. What is this for us? Well, verse 15 of chapter 1 tells us what this is for us. Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news and publishes peace. Do you understand this? That unless God deals with the injustice of this world, with His own justice, and guess, unless God avenges the glory of His name, unless He comes and vanquishes all of His enemies and kills death and Satan himself, unless He does that, there will be no peace. And so God's wrath and His justice and His judgment equals peace for His children. And what is the great outcome? Well, verse two of chapter two gives us some insight into that, does it not? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The promise held out here in Nahum is a promise of restoration. And we come to see that in some part there is a little restoration as God's people make their way back as walls are rebuilt, another temple made, there's a bit of a restoration, but it is just a picture lacking the full glory of the first, but paling in utter comparison to the last. That there is a forward and future true restoration that is held out for true Israel. That this earthly Israel is pointing ahead to a future Israel A future people of God where every tear will be wiped and every table will be full with the marriage feast of the Lamb. Which again leaves us with the question, how do we get there? How do we find this powerful God as a refuge for our souls? What moves a man from being an enemy to God to being his friend? Friends, this is the hope of Jesus Christ that he is the true stronghold in trouble. I've pointed this out or tried to each week what these minor prophets' names mean because I think they have some significance on their message. Well, the name of Nahum means, get this, comfort. Comfort. It's an ironic name for a prophet who preaches so much doom, isn't it? How is it that Nahum can mean comfort? Or, or not just comfort, but exceeding comfort, a lot of comfort. Over the top comfort. But it feels like there's so little comfort in this book unless the penalty of God's wrath for our rebellion and sin has already been paid for. There is comfort there. That Christ is the great giver of peace. He is the good news. He is the great stronghold in our day of trouble because he has taken what would have been the greatest trouble, that is God's wrath, and made it his. He has swallowed up the everlasting vengeance of God so that we might find him good. What's more, with an overwhelming flood, he will return. And friends, he will make an utter end to his enemies. And all hatred... And all sorrow, all sickness, and all death will be no more. He will cast Satan into the pit with them. He will pursue and He will overcome all His enemies and bring justice to all those opposed to Him. And so friends, as we are washed over constantly by an ongoing flood of sin, our own, and others, and sorrow, and shame. There is a green island. There is a sheltering rock that holds forth its shores above the foam and stands firm amid the waves of turbulent waters. And His name is Jesus, the Rock of Ages. Christ gives everlasting security to the seeking soul from the tides and the gales of unbelief. Christ gives everlasting strength to the bruised and nearly extinguished heart. Christ gives everlasting joy to the sorrowful and downtrodden. Friends, Christ is the stronghold of Nahum. He is the rock. He is the one who reforms and restores now until the day when His very presence shall transform us once and forevermore into glory upon glory. Oh, when heaven and earth are passing, crumbling as a burning scroll, is there no abiding foothold, no fixed refreshment refreshment for the soul? Yes, a man, the man Christ Jesus, on the wreck of time He stands, and the souls of countless millions lie within His pierced hands. Let us pray. Christ, we come before you resting upon your pierced hands. You are the stronghold of our lives. And so God, I pray even in this moment if there are those here among us as you convict hearts of sin that you would draw them to repentance by the power of the Spirit. God, I pray over those who are your children, that we too would be quickened to repentance where we have not trusted you as a God who is both powerful and a protector, who is both good and just. Oh God, this is who you are. And Jesus, as we look forward to the day when you will return and make an end to your enemies, give us faith to trust that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of Christ Jesus our Lord. In His name we pray. Amen.